President Helfand, you may begin the retirement board meeting of October 11, 2023 at this time. Thank you. Um, Madam Secretary, you want to call the roll, please? Yes, Commissioner Thomas. Present. Uh, Commissioner Safai is on his way. President Helfand? Present. Commissioner Driscoll? Present. Uh, Commissioner Gandhi is on her way also. Commissioner Bridges? Present. Thank you. We do have a quorum. Great. Thank you. Um, do you want to call the next item, please? Yes. Item number two, communications. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at this meeting after we do not have closed session today. And there will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Each comment is limited to two minutes. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by call-in. For each item, the board will take public comment first for people attending the meeting in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Comments or opportunities to speak during public comment period are available by phone by calling 415-655-0001, access code 2660-851-3617, then pound and pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, please press star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your TV or radio. We thank you for joining us. Thank you. Madam Secretary, you wanna call the next item? Item number three, general public comment. A reminder that public comment is limited to two minutes. Do we have any in-person public comment? Seeing none, a reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the speaker line. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? You're muted. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? You're muted. Moderator, you're muted. No. President Helfand, while we're waiting, would you like to mention um, the continuance? On right, there's going to be a change to the agenda in item number eight. Will be moved forward in another in the next meeting. Thank you. Number eight. Thank you, moderator. Do we have any callers on the line? I see rate one raised hand. Caller, please state your name. Your two minutes begin when you speak. Hello, my name is Kevin McPherson. That's spelled M-C-P like Paul, H-E-R-S-O-N. I was a police officer for 20 years and, and unfortunately I was disabled at work and couldn't return. 
and I submitted an application 30 months ago for an industrial disability retirement and I had yet to have my hearing heard. And I, I know you guys were just concerned about how you, your job performance was doing last month. I will tell you, you are, as far as disability retirements go, you are the worst in the state. You are four to five times worse than the, than the, than the norm and you're twice as long, at least twice as long as the number, as the second worst uh, board or system in the state. I just want to let you know that. We're hit, sitting here, we retirees are waiting, you know, three, almost three years. It's probably going to be three years before I get my hearing heard, and, unless I have juice, of course, and it gets moved up, but I don't have any juice, so my, I'm sitting in the queue like all the regular normal people, and I'm waiting forever to get my disability hearing, and it's not fair. It's, it's something that should not be done. You only did four this month. You do seven, four, six, you're never going to get to me. You're, it's going to be over three years before my hearing is my case is heard, and that's that's not fair to me or any other people that are waiting on this list of, of however many people are on that. No one will tell me. They won't tell me what number I am on the list exactly. They won't tell me how many people are on the list. And I think that should all be made public for everyone to know. Thank you. Thank you for your call. Do we have any other callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no other callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. You want to go in here? Okay. Hey, I must chunk in there. Thank you. Madam Secretary, you want to call item number four, please? Item number four, action item. Approval of the minutes of the September 13, 2023 retirement board meeting. We all have the minutes in our packet. Move to approve the minutes. Thanks. Okay, it's Moved and second. You want to have uh, some public, the public comment, please? Thank you. Uh, we have no in-person public comment on this item. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, it's been moved by Commissioner Thomas and seconded by Commissioner Driscoll. All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? No, motion passes. Next item, please. Item number five, action item, consent calendar. Does anybody have any comments or want to get one or any item under the microscope? Uh, Mr. Chair, I, uh, you're muted, Commissioner. Second. Okay. That was a motion, right? Yes. Okay, didn't hear. Okay. All right. Um, do we have any public comment? We have no in-person public comment on this item. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. All right. It's been moved and seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed say nay. Motion passes. Next item, please. Item number six, discussion item, response to GRS report, independent actuarial review. Good morning, commissioners. Bill Hallmark. Oh, yes, I think um, Darlene will be bringing up the presentation shortly. And Bill Hallmark and Ann Harper are here from Chiron. Uh, the they're going to respond to the actual audit that was presented to the board in August and GRS concluded I'm going to quote 
The July 1, 22 actuarial evaluation for SFERS is reasonable for the purpose of assessing the financial condition of SFERS and determining the employer contribution rates, unquote. But of course, GRS did have some suggestions and Chiron is here to respond and to answer any board questions. Thank you. Uh, can we just go to the next slide here? So really, the, the reason you do an actuarial audit is to make sure that you can rely on our results uh, and consider any recommendations uh, from another independent perspective that we may not have brought to you. Uh, we were pleased that the audit confirmed that our valuation was reasonable and can be relied on. Uh, the, they did make some recommendations for us to consider when uh, we do the next experience study, which uh, would be done after the 2024 valuation uh, in 2025. Uh, and so we, we appreciate those recommendations uh, and we will certainly uh, address them when we conduct that experience study. The rest of this presentation has uh, more detailed thoughts uh, on their recommendations and how we would respond to it. Uh, I, I'm happy to go through that, but I thought maybe the best approach here would just, uh, since that would not happen until 2025, uh, just ask the board if they have any questions on the, the details that we provided. That's a good idea. Board members, we've had that in the practice. Anybody have any questions, comments? If not, Go ahead. Oh, you have nothing. Thank you. All right. Joe, I have a question. Sorry, I'm missing the flow of information. Can you? You're on mute right now, Commissioner Driscoll. Oh, thank you. The bullet point in front of us, based on their uh, their report, part of it was directing us to look at something. The bullet point where it simply says. The 7.2% investment rate assumption is, in GR's opinion, at the upper limit of a reasonable range. Okay, that's fine. That's an observation. Did you address it in your? I did not. I didn't notice it on these pages from your. Re so the the actual that was an observation. The actual it's an observation. They the were not actual recommendation was just that we review it and monitor it. Okay. Each year. The fact it was in an audit then sort of I don't say it surprises me about an audit, but it was. Nobody will say it's a useless piece of information, but uh, I'll just stop then talking about it, explain why we do what we do. But to put it there to, to imply that we're supposed to, we should do something different is what bothers me about what they did. But anyway, okay, I'll stop. Thank you. And, and the board does the board does monitor the economic assumptions, including the discount rate annually, and that'll be the next right. item. We monitor and prove what we do. Thank you. All right. I don't think we have anything else on this okay. item. Great. Any further questions, comments? I move to accept uh, Chiron's response as submitted. That's the item on the agenda. Is this a discussion? discussion? It's a discussion. Okay, so this is a discussion item only, um, but we will have public comment. We have no in-person public comment on this item. A reminder to any callers to please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. No calls. Public comment is now closed. 
Um, we'll call to the next item, please. Yes, action item number seven is an action item, economic assumptions review for the July 1, 2023 actuarial funding valuation. And commissioners, this is the economic assumptions review that is performed annually by the board. Every year the board deliberates and decides on the economic assumptions. So if we can bring the presentation up for that. Thank you. Go ahead and move to the next slide. Uh, so we are uh, going to review the economic assumptions and, and um, I think this is an action item we'd like you to confirm uh, the assumptions so let's move to the next slide before we get into the assumptions we just wanted to give you a preliminary update on where the the plan is uh, the the preliminary investment returns this year were about 4.6 percent that follows uh, in, in 2022, we had some negative returns, but 2021, we had uh, significantly positive returns. And, and we, uh, for calculating contributions, we smoothed the returns over a five-year period. So we're still recognizing part of that uh, 2021 return. And so contribution rates are still trending downward because that is the overriding piece that's being recognized. The others are, are still uh, close, even though their their actuarial losses they were smaller. So let's move to the next slide. But this is just a, a preliminary update using um, just the the preliminary asset information and comparing to our prior projections. So the left side is showing the gray bars are the projection of the liability and the green and teal lines are the assets and then the funded ratios on top. On the right-hand side, we have the, the member contribution rates estimated after cost sharing and uh, the gold is the employer contribution rate. And so you can see we are still expecting the member contribution rate to go down by 50 basis points. And in fact, the 4.6% the return does not trigger a supplemental COLA. Uh, and in our projections, we assume there's a 50% chance of a supplemental COLA. So that uh, not paying for a COLA offset more of the investment loss. And so the actual contribution rate we're projecting for next year is a little bit lower than what it was before. Um, but you can see as it goes out, it's very close to what we had projected before. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty minor adjustment uh, in those projections. Let's go to, let's go to the next slide. Now, uh, I do wanna say we, we still have to get new census data and look at gains and losses from, from all of that. So this is all very much preliminary and get final asset information. Uh, okay, now we'll uh, move into the economic assumptions and we can go to the next slide. Uh, as we've been stating, we review these every year. The demographic assumptions like mortality, retirement rates, and so forth, uh, we review every five years. And so that's what will be coming up in 2025. 
the assumptions you adopt today uh, are for this year's valuation, but they affect contributions for fiscal year end 2025. So there's a, there's a delay between the valuation date and when the contribution changes are affected. Let's go to the next slide. I keep wanting to hit the button. <laughs> Um, can you move your microphone more towards you? I can. It doesn't move. <laughs> I can move yeah. myself. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, so this slide just shows the history of the economic assumptions. And uh, we've been at 7.2% for a couple of years now on the discount rate. Our wage inflation has been three and a quarter for about three years, uh, as has the price inflation. Um, but over the, the 20 years here, shown here, all of those numbers have come down quite a bit. Let's go to the next slide. So, quick summary of what we're going to show you. Uh, we're not recommending any changes. Uh, we think we should just stick with the current economic assumptions going forward. And so I'm going to turn it to Ann to walk us through a couple of those. So, um, next two slides actually. I'm going to uh, walk through uh, a lot of the data and information that we use to develop and support our recommendations. Uh, so, first, uh, we'll talk about price inflation. Um, it is the building block of all the other economic assumptions, the wage inflation and also the expected return assumption. Um, it does not, however, have any direct impact on your valuation. Uh, mostly because your COLA, your basic COLA, is uh, 2%. Uh, it's capped at 2%. It's based on CPI, but it's capped at 2%. And so the current inflation assumption of 2.5% means that we, every year we assume that your retirees are going to receive their 2% uh, COLA. So, so there's really no impact on your valuation for the price inflation. Next slide, please. So generally when we're setting economic assumptions and developing them, we look at history, we look at industry trends, and also uh, do a peer comparison uh, for context. But uh, the primary source of what we look at is future expectations of these economic assumptions. So inflation, as everyone knows, has been high. Um, as of August 31st, the annual inflation was at 3.7%, which has been coming down. It's much lower than the six or seven percent we were seeing in the previous year. Um, when we look at future expectations, one of the um, explicit ways to look at that is a market indicator, which is called the break-even inflation rate. And that's just the difference between the yield on your treasuries and the tips, um, and tips which is the treasury inflation protected securities. And when we look at those, we can see that over the next five years, uh, the expectations in the market is driving is at 2.24 percent um, and then over the next 20 years it's at 2.6 percent so your inflation rate right now or the assumption of 2.5 percent uh, we is still reasonable um, but then the one last item that we'll look at is uh, uh, the next slide please is the industry trends and the peer comparison um, on the left hand side of this chart uh, the furthest left you see the uh, Economist expectations of inflation. It's a compilation of uh, different economists, different investment banks and, and universities in the country. And you can see that it's a very wide expectation of what inflation will be. And there, this is over a 10-year period. 
um, and their first five-year forecasts are very, very similar to the following five-year forecast, about between 1.5% and 3%. So um, again, a very wide range. But then when you look at the next survey, which is a compilation of about 40 different investment consultants across the country, uh, Wilshire included in that uh, survey, you can see a much narrower range of what the expectations of inflation are. Um, and that is over a 20-year period. So that's some of the reason it's a little bit more narrow, or it's a longer period of time. Uh, and, but then when we look at uh, different databases for public pension plan assumptions, we can see on the public plan database uh, with, with another wide range of uh, assumptions there. Uh, and that's because, again, it's national and it's over 200 different systems. And so you have a range between three, or I'm sorry, two and uh, over three and a half percent. But we also look at a survey that we put together every year uh, of the California public sector pension plans, and that is, again, a narrower range. And all of these, though, do have one thing in common, is that their expectations for inflation are right around the 2.4%, 2.5%. Uh, so we believe the current assumption is reasonable and are recommending no change to that. Um, if you can forward it for two more slides, please. We're going to talk next about the wage inflation. So the wage inflation assumption can be seen as an overall expectation of wage growth for your uh, individual members of SVRS. Uh, on top of that is the merit and longevity piece when they're, you know, when they're promoted or they uh, reach different steps in their career, and that piece, that merit piece, is studied when we do the economic, or excuse me, when we do the demographic study and that's done every five years so we're really just talking about that base wage uh, inflation for your members the chart on the right hand side of the slide shows that um, the california survey of the most recent assumptions and you're at 3.25 percent uh, for your wage inflation with a 0.75% real wage growth and um, there are 12 systems in California that are at that same assumption. Um, most are at the 3% level um, but you are in a higher uh, cost of living area here in San Francisco than other parts of California so that makes sense. I can interrupt you. So sure. you said the three, is that California or is that nationwide? This is, now we're talking about California only. Okay, that's why. Yep. yep. So it, by regions within, within the state of California then, is it broken down by north, south, or is it just a, a wide flaw? This is, it's, this is just all of California. We do have in the appendix, you can see the different systems, and if you want to look at anyone specifically, it's on slide 29 to look at. Um, the different assumptions. Some of these lower um, wage inflation assumptions um, are the transit systems. We do have uh, a handful of transit systems. In That's there. what I was trying okay. to <laughs> Because I know transit systems have an impact on how this, and they're huge, particularly uh, ones in San Francisco, you go to LA, Right. in a larger transit system. It makes a difference. That's what I was looking for. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, this graph here shows national local governments and what actually happened uh, historically over the last 5, 10, and 20 years in terms of 
actual inflation, wage growth, and then uh, real wage growth. Um, and if the top green bars are the real wage growth, and those are over the last five and 20 years, those have the, his, the history of that has been uh, ranged between 50 basis points and a little over 1%. And your current real wage growth assumption is 0.75%, which is on top of the inflation. Uh, so the current is 3.25%, uh, and we still believe that this is reasonable. Um, and we do use the current bargained uh, agreements in our valuation when they are available. So we will we would incorporate those into um, the results of uh, our projections um, for the valuation. Okay, moving on to the discount rate. Slide 16, please. So there are two sources of uh, funding and paying for pension benefits. There's the contributions and your uh, investment returns. So when if you have greater actual investment returns over time, actual investment returns, you're going to have lower relative contributions and vice versa. If your investment returns are lower, then you're going to have higher contributions. So we need to set an assumption for our actual valuation to estimate what we believe the assumed rate of return going forward and what your portfolio will earn so that we can have some future, so to provide contribution stability for your pension plan. So this, the discount rate is the most powerful single assumption uh, that we use. And relatively speaking, the higher expected return, you're going to have higher or lower expected contributions. But a higher assumption does increase the likelihood that future contributions will be higher than expected. And vice versa, the lower assumption, relatively speaking, reduces the likelihood that future contributions will be higher in the than expected. Currently, your discount rate is 7.2%. Um, we do have a graphic here that shows different discount rate spreads. Um, the spread between the discount rate and price inflation. Um, and this spread, as I said earlier, because inflation has very little direct impact on your plan, it doesn't mean as much as the wage inflation discount rate spread. And the smaller that spread is, or the lower that number is, means that you have a more conservative assumption. And then that last bar is showing the spread between your discount rate and the 10-year uh, Treasury yield. Uh, right in our presentation, it says 3.75%, but currently that yield has increased all the way up to 4.66%. Um, and so the spread there is called what we call a risk premium. And the lower the spread, the less risk your plan would need to take to achieve the expected return assumption. And that's because you would, you'd ha need to have a lower allocation in those higher yielding asset classes. So um, that's, this spread has been coming down in the last couple years. Um, it's really what, vice versa, it had driven, or driven discount rates down over the last decade because that spread was increasing, but now we're seeing that spread decreasing because those treasury yields are so much higher. Next slide, please. So th these, the next two slides are gonna be peer group comparisons. Um, the first is on a national level, 
And this slide on the left-hand side shows the decreasing trend in the discount rate over the last 20 years. Uh, the median discount rate back in 2002 was 8%, and now in, for the 2022 valuations, that has come down to 7%. And the yellow diamond represents ESFER's declining discount rate over that same period. So you can see where you are in relation to your peers there. And again, this database is based on 20, or I'm sorry, 200 systems from the public sector plan database. And then on the right-hand side is showing the detail of 2022 and where plans are with their discount rate. So it shows the number of systems that are at each discount rate, and these are rounded to the nearest 25 or 25 basis points. So your, your system is uh, in with that 7.25% group, and there's 45 systems out of 200 at that 7.25%. And again, like I said, the median there and the most common discount rate in the country is about 7%. Switching to the next slide, when we look at the California trends, that's kind of a less macro level of, of uh, peer group comparison. And again, you see the same trend with discount rates coming down over time. Um, and in 2021 and 2022, I just wanted to note that those larger green, like light green bands, um, that just means there's more discount rates within that band, but it doesn't mean there are more systems at that rate, just to, to clarify that. Um, so in 2022, and there are some systems in 2023 where we have information, um, the most common interest rate in California and the median is now lower, it's at 6.75%. So there are 17 systems at, at that 6.75% rate. Last year, uh, um, when we came here, the, uh, the median and the most common rate was 7%. So in one year, we have seen a shift uh, down in discount, in the trends in discount rates in California. There was 19 systems at 7%. About nine of those went down to 6.75, and then two that were at 6.75 went down to 6.5. And with that, I will turn it over to Bill. So next slide, please. Uh, so we've been showing you this slide for several years. Uh, on the top, it's really showing uh, the history that Ann was talking about, about the yield on the 10-year Treasury versus your assumption and that difference being the expected risk premium. And we went through that, um, the period where those yields went down and they kept going down, and so uh, we had to reduce our assumptions uh, and at the same time on the bottom chart you can see we also saw a change in asset allocation now we could do this chart on just about any public plan in the country and you'd see a similar pattern so i just want to be clear that while this is your data i'm not picking on you for this this is what has happened to public pension plans across the country they've uh, taken, they've had to shift their asset allocation to try and achieve the expected returns. And, and uh, the shift has been towards uh, other asset classes, primarily private asset classes. And, and you see that across the country. <coughs> You're no, no different. What's different now is we've seen the uptick in interest rates. And, and so the question is, uh, how is that gonna change things going forward? 
And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. We don't have answers to that question, but um, wanted to raise that uh, because this is really the macro dynamic that we're dealing with. So next slide, please. Uh, so here, the chart on the left, the gray bar is the range from the expected return over a 10-year horizon to the expected return over a 30-year horizon. And we're showing the four prior years. Uh, those are all based on NEPC's assumptions. And the, the, dim the gold diamond is the discount rate that we chose. Uh, then the next um, range is from the 2023 Horizon Survey. That's a survey of uh, 42 investment consultants. 27 of them provide uh, long-term assumptions and the, all 42 provide a 10-year horizon. And so we calculated uh, your target investment portfolio and what that return would be for 2023. And then Wilshire provided us their uh, expectations on on two sets of capital market assumptions, one set in the fourth quarter of 2022 and one set in the second quarter of 2023. Uh, so you can see that there was a change even in, in that quarter. Uh, so before I get to the, um, the last bar, uh, you can see just a huge shift between 2022 and 2023. And that is really being driven by uh, the, the rise in interest rates. There are obviously other factors, valuations, and, and other factors that go into these. But the real driver of that change has been interest rates. And it's one of the largest single-year adjustments that, that we've seen. Um, then the last bar is an illustrated, is based on an illustrative asset allocation that reduces the private equity allocation by 5% that we were provided by uh, your staff. Uh, and those are Wilshire's uh, second quarter assumptions. So you can see that um, there is, there has been a dramatic shift uh, in the capital market assumptions in one year. I would note um, 2019, you see it's pretty high. We went back one year before that, 2018, it was much lower. Uh, so that was one odd year that, that jumped up as well because of uh, a change in interest rates at that time and equity valuations. Um, so these do move around uh, as the market markets change. So let's go to the next slide. So given the, the rapid rise, uh, our, our main concern is, <coughs> is that change temporary or is it sustainable? Uh, the primary driver has been uh, the increase in interest rates and it's not clear if or when those rates may come down. Uh, we also want to be cautious about any increase to our discount rate um, because we really don't want to increase it and then have to reverse course if the market goes back to where it it was uh, that that just moves moves people around uh, and so the higher interest rates and the evolving liquidity needs uh, could also affect your asset allocation decisions uh, if we do have this significant uh, change in the markets 
and the final point we want to make is it is okay for the discount rate to be less than the expected rate of return. We really don't like it the other way around, but it being more conservative uh, just gives us some margin and a greater probability of achieving uh, our uh, expected return. So for those reasons, we are proposing that there's no change to the discount rate this year and that we keep monitoring where the market is going. We'll, I mean, we review this assumption every year. We'll be back next year with an update uh, and look at where things are at that point in time. So next slide. So again, our, to summarize, we're uh, recommending no assumption changes this year. Uh, and of course, we'll be back next year to re review them again. So we'll take any questions you have. Simple question. If I'm, if, uh, if I'm a, um, I, basic working knowledge of what you're talking about, our constituencies, our, <coughs> our funding source, the city, whatever. This, what we're, you're showing us and what you're sort of confirming in your, in your suggestion is consistency and discipline through this decision process that is bolstered by our asset allocation and what, uh, how we're holding the investment, how, our, how we're doing our business. Is that a fair statement? Yes, we're uh, definitely promoting consistency, and, and that gives us stability in, in the, the contributions as, as we approach it. Great. I appreciate that. But more than that, I appreciate what staff does. So. I have one question about the, the wage inflation number. Uh, I know how what's going on in the markets, and I, I don't, not the private market, capital markets, where people are buying their groceries. It can take a couple of years before it reflected in wages. Okay. Uh, my question, in, and we've made one or two assumptions about wage inflation. We've lowered a little bit in one or two small parts of the total membership. My question is, we don't strive for actual gains or losses here, but I'm just wondering about the significance of when our wage and inflation assumption is too low how significant, how does that impact the contribution rates? I'm, I'm rather familiar with it on the, how the discount and the assumed rates of return, and those are the big numbers, but on the wage inflation one, I'm just curious because there's going to be another, a lot going on over the next couple of years. Right, and so first I just want to be clear that any bargaining agreements that have been negotiated, we reflect those in the valuation. So while we're saying three and a quarter percent, that's only after those bargaining agreements expire. So we are capturing the, the short-term piece. But to your, your point, if, um, if our assumption is too low, uh, there is an actuarial loss on the liability side because people's benefits are higher than we expected because the benefits are based on their salary and so the salary goes up. On the other hand, when we're calculating a contribution rate, we're dividing by their salary. And so in terms of a rate, it has a, a, a tendency to offset much of the, the impact, not all of the impact, but it does offset much of it. So uh, 
it is not nearly as sensitive as the investment return uh, uh, rate, but it does have an impact. And I think we, we showed that in our VAL report, and I think it's in the, the other assumption on the, the actuarial audit. Uh, you can see the sort of the five-year history uh, of the salary increase piece in the last couple of years. It, it, it was noticeable, but still a small part of our overall liability. And part of the reason it is a smaller part of our overall liability, it only impacts the active members. Um, it, it does impact some of the old safety colas, but that group is very small for the retirees. So I don't know exactly what the uh, proportions of your active to inactive liability are, but it, I, it, your inactive liability is over 50% of your liability. So it doesn't impact that portion, that huge portion of your liability. It only impacts the active liability. Okay, well, thanks for uh, answering the question. Maybe I should have been more specific because uh, it goes to the sensitivity to contribution changes. So I, I would say the number is $5 million. I'm just trying to think how the if, – if we were super accurate, there wouldn't be any gain or loss. I'm just trying to think of if we underestimate, hey, San Francisco, in terms of recognizing and amortizing, it's, is it going to be $1 million a year, $2 million, $3 million a year if we're off? That's what I'm trying to drive at. So – if the wage inflation assumption is what three and a quarter yes and then last year it just happened to be 3.7 i may be mixing up the price inflation yeah, versus it, the wage inflation. yeah 3.7 was uh that was pure price inflation that was inflation for the trailing 12 months yeah. it's how that they're connected even you say they're sort of equal on one page not to understand if we're wrong if we were off by half a percent working that through to contributions how much of a different difference does it make we don't have that number, but it's, it's, I mean, it's, but it's small. Question. It's very it's small. That's my point. Yeah. It's small. Right. Because, because it's, it's amortized it, over 20 years. Yeah, okay, the smoothing, right. Right. and there's a combination with the other actual gains and losses, and they're connected in terms of inflation, has affect market returns. Right. Okay, but the word small, I'll be satisfied with that for now, Bill. Thank you. <laughs> Any further questions? Great. Thank you. Because, uh, Good. All right, I'm the Secretary. We are um, going to take it's an action item. item. Sorry. This is an action item. It is an action item. Yeah, right. we need to approve the, the assumptions. Okay. Move adoption of the economic assumptions as recommended. Second. Okay. Well, the Secretary, now we'll have public comment. Thank you. We have no in-person public comment on this item. <clears throat> Reminder to any callers to please press star 3 to be added to the queue. Moderator, are there any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Here are no calls. Public comment is now closed. Okay, Madam Secretary. Um, can we do a roll call vote on this item rather than just the item in that place? been moved and seconded, moved by second um, by Commissioner Driscoll and seconded by Commissioner Thomas. Can you take your microphone off mute? I can. I'm oh, one more. It off. <laughs> okay. So do a, You would like a roll call I would, vote? I would. Certainly. Commissioner Thomas? Aye. President Helfon? Aye. Commissioner Driscoll? Aye. 
Commissioner Gandhi? Aye. Commissioner Bridges? Aye. Thank you. We have five ayes. Motion passes. Can we call the next item, please? And thank, thank you, you, Commissioners. Thank you. thank you very much. Excellent report. Thank you. Yes, item eight is being moved to the next board meeting. We're on item number nine, discussion item, Chief Executive Officer's report. Commissioners, I will be uh, brief here. We have a number of other uh, big items to discuss today. Um, first and foremost, I want to thank all the commissioners. We've kicked off our uh, new and improved committee uh, schedule, and we started with a very successful uh, DC committee meeting. So thank you, Leona, for, for your leadership there, as well as uh, Commissioner Driscoll and, and Thomas for that. Um, want to make sure on your radar screen is the upcoming uh, governance committee meeting, which will be um, uh, in a couple weeks, and then the investment committee meeting on November 1st. Um, tied to that governance committee meeting, um, we will be talking about our uh, education survey and education needs assessment. So with that, I do want to highlight in these CEO materials that we have, as always, uh, some um, opportunities for training that Nassiman puts together every month, and there are certainly some, some good items in here. Um, and I know we have them every month, but just really wanted to, if you haven't looked at it recently, feel free to take a look and uh, let us know. We obviously are happy to help coordinate and get you registered for anything that may be uh, of interest there. That is really all I had on the, the CEO uh, report uh, today, but I'd be happy to address any questions that the commissioners have. Commissioners, any further questions, comments? None? Okay, this is an, a discussion item, and uh, we'll have public comment, please. Thank you. We have no in-house public comment on this item. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Call the next item, please. Item number 10, discussion item, San Francisco Deferred Compensation Plan Monthly Report. Good afternoon. Is this right? Okay. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Thank you so much for your time today. If, uh, thank you, Ms. Armanino, for pulling up the uh, presentation. Um, just a few updates for you for the monthly uh, board report. I'd like to just start by going through the deck Ms. Armanino had pulled up, just because it's on your screen. What you see in front of you is basically the direct mail that we had sent out to all active participants, um, the uh, retirement FOMO theme. And I just want to share with the board that it's actually been going very well. I have some numbers to share with you on the um, adoption and the open rates. So we can move to the next slide, please. Uh, and the next one. And if we could just go to slide, the next one, please. Uh, this is the campaign timeline that I wanted to share with you. So as you know, I think uh, last week, that's when we actually first dropped. Uh, today, we're actually having a webinar, uh, webinar number two, planning for a lifetime of caregiving. This is a very interesting webinar. We have some details for you to look at and learn more about that on page six. But um, at the request of Commissioner Driscoll, given the um, importance of the topic and the interest, we are working on creating a brain shark so that this uh, uh, webinar can be um, accessed on demand um, by um, participants or prospects if needed. 
Also next week, we have our in-person seminar, and I wanted to share some information on that with the, with the uh, board. Um, we are actually at capacity, so uh, we have a waiting list now. Over 130 RSVPs and 10 more on the waiting list. So we do obviously increase the RSVP amount to plan for attrition, but right now we are looking at a full house. So um, on the 18th, if any of the board members are around, we welcome you to come to the San Francisco Main Library. Uh, it always ends up being um, standing room only uh, event. Commissioner Driscoll is very kind to grace us with his presence every year, I think, on that. And I think even uh, Commissioner Bridges as well. Um, so I just want to share with you some of the um, webinars and seminars that are coming up. You can see at the uh, underneath uh, the number of emails that we had sent out, the types of emails we sent out to our participants. So if we can go to the next email, I mean next page. One more. And one more after that. That was a seminar. This is the description that I had shared with you. And one more, please. All right, so these are the weekly emails. So our first weekly email dropped last week. Um, our theme was to uh, meet with the counselor. So to date, we've already had 400 one-on-ones. That's 400 city and county of San Francisco employees who have met with an SFDCP counselor. That's within the last 10 days. So we are off to a really, really good start. Um, and um, we look forward to reporting back on the end of month numbers. Week email number two, that just dropped. Uh, that actually, um, I don't know if you guys had known, but in addition to October being National Retirement Security Month, it's also Cybersecurity Month. And so we wanted to tie that theme in to help people protect their account by learning how to um, register their account online. Uh, week three is your usual contribution rate, and uh, week four is your NRSM recap. Um, to the left, you can see an image of uh, our week one email. You can see uh, the pictures of our counselors here. I wanted to inform the board that Chris Wisdom is now in the field. So if you remember, Chris Wisdom used to be an um, employee of the Sewers Investment staff, and he has since come over to the participant side and, um, and, and has been enjoying um, learning about the plan and reaching out to prospects and participants about the SFDCP. So we can move to the next page. Um, this is basically our homepage for the website, uh, for the NRSM website, and you can access this by going to sfdcp.org NRSM. This actually features an improved look and feel. It's a new UE, and we believe that it has been successful. What you can see on the, on the left-hand side, you can see this little bar here that says, you see the people that says 20K, and it says over 20,000 of your colleagues are contributing to the SFDCP. That's a rotating banner. So every time you go in there, there's gonna be a different um, fact, uh, which helps with um, um, letting our participants know that they shouldn't miss out on participating in the plan. So we're very excited about that look and feel. And then we move to the next page. Thank you. Here's a sample of some of our giveaway items. Um, you can see that we have some really good prizes to entice people to come, including a prize that's given to the seminar, the live meeting. Um, also want to share with the board that two years ago, our very own Allo Martins was a winner of one of these. And so I'm sure he'll be playing again. Um, and we always encourage um, um, all our participants and prospects to, to, to play. So we are very excited about that. And if we go to the next page, please. 
So that pretty much summarizes the NRSM overview. I have one last uh, update to give you with regards to the stable value fund, but I wanted to pause here to see if there's any questions on the campaign thus far um, so that I can address them. I have a question, but not on the campaign. Okay. Well, let's leave it to the end. Okay. Go ahead. Sure, yeah, sure. The last thing I want to share with the committee is the stable value rate for Q4. As you guys recall, stable value is our most conservative investment, um, and that is actually the um, largest holding in our plan right now. We have over $1 billion in assets in there. Um, I wanted to inform the board that the stable value rate of 2.90 from Q3 has carried over to Q4. So there has been no change to the stable value rate of 2.90. That is a guaranteed rate, so regardless of how the market performs, it's guaranteed for the next full quarter and will be reset at the end of this year. I wanted to share some context behind um, this uh, unchanged um, crediting rate. Um, as you know, well, as well, I'm to inform you that our portfolio yields had actually risen from 5.07 to 5.4 because the Fed moved 25 bips in July, but at the same time, inversely, our market to book ratio actually went down. So there's sort of this, this, this inverse correlation there. And it was down slightly from 93.9 to 93.0. In addition, we had participant outflows of 25 million over the period, contributing to a lower market to book ratio. So in the end, basically, even though we had a higher underlying fixed income yield, there was a decrease in the market to book ratio, which contributed to an unchanged declared rate. And that's basically my update for the month. Is there any questions on stable value? Yes. <clears throat> yes. Can you please say again, what is the market value of the stable value account? The market value is currently, and this is for the period of 531 to 831, okay? It is 93%. 93. 93%. Thank you. All right. And that concludes my monthly report for the board. Let me ask you a question. Um, do, and a, a cybersecurity month, that's what prompts the question. Can we offer our, our participants um, a global product of cybersecurity cyber affinity marketed program that's not like LifeLock or whatever the stuff you get, they get mass marketed, but it's bespoke for the group that is being sold. Can, they, can we offer that? Do you understand? It's a product, it, it's a policy that protects them for cybersecurity. Right. And there's all, kind, there's all coverages it's small, broad to, you know, just really not, nothing. But. So President Helfon, to address your question, and I'm happy to hear from uh, Commissioner Bridges as well, we do offer what's called the VOYA CARES program. Right. Um, and so what happens is as part of the VOYA CARES program, provided that you follow some basic steps, which we've had actually outlined in prior meetings, right. if there are bad actors that access your account, VOYA will cover that account up to 100%. Now, there are some steps that VOYA expects you to take just to make sure that you've done your basic due diligence sure. as a concerned account holder, like registering your account or checking your account once a year. But we do currently have a policy in place with VOYA that does make them whole, provided that they are subject to bad actors. 
Right. And, and, and it, well, okay, I won't go into details, but that, and I'm talking about something broader. Okay. And these products are out there, and big corporations have them, whatever, and this gives you the ability to, uh, wealth managers all offer it through their, their um, book of business and the like. So this is a true value add that we could bring our retirees. Retirees. Or our, our, our members, period. And the pricing is, is obviously affinity marketing is, a, is the way to bring down pricing and also broaden coverage. Are you talking about cybersecurity insurance? Yeah, this, this is all a cyber policy. Yes, okay. Yeah, I, I understand too. It is cybersecurity insurance. And perhaps what we should do is let um, Ms. Chewy Justin and our CEO, CIO, yeah. um, review it and come back to the board. Um, but it is, I understand what you're talking about. It is broad. Yeah, it's an opportunity to bring yeah. some. Uh, but I would refer back to staff for review. Yeah, I agree. Th thank you, Commissioner Bridges. I was, I was going to hop in and, and, and say that. I, I think we need to evaluate yeah. the, the, the product and the opportunity and whether or not something like that would or should sit within a DC program or the Spurs umbrella. Uh, as opposed to somewhere else. So we will come back to you on that. Great. Excellent. Okay. Good report. Thank you, Commissioners. Yeah. Very yeah. excited. Thank you. And what, what's the swag you guys are giving? <laughs> <laughs> we can make sure to bring some over to the committee members as well and to the board members as well. Yep. Yep, that's right. We had umbrellas. We have sunglasses. We, sunscreen tends to be very popular. Believe it or not, sunscreen is a very popular one. Um, and so we will actually make sure to, to put some in your mailboxes as well because those are free things that we give to um, our employees at the um, benefit fair giveaways. So as you know, October is a benefits. It's a benefits for people who are in a benefits frame of mind. I think HSS, their office is actually open now for people to come in to talk about open mm -hmm. enrollment. And so we will definitely be out there in the field promoting the plan and answering questions so um, some good good swag and you can see the um, the uh, uh, um, actual raffle prizes in your deck uh, if you know an employee and want to you know right. play that way thank you great job um, okay this is discussion item can we have public comment please <clears throat> thank you we have no in-person public comment on this item and any callers please press star three to be added to the queue moderator do we have any callers Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Okay, let's do a call number. No, wait. Um, how long is the next item, do you think? This and is probably our most substantial item on the agenda. Okay, so, Commission, do you want to um, take a break, grab a lunch, and we'll eat during, as we work? So take 20 minute break now. Is that sure? Is that good? Works for me. Okay. Good. So yeah, right. correct. Yeah, this is pretty extensive. Let's do it.
on item number 11, correct? We are on item number 11. I'm going to call it. Discussion item, risk re review for SPURS total plan. Commissioner, this is probably the biggest, uh, um, well, I would say the actuarial item and this item are the, the two biggest items on the uh, agenda today. Um, I will kick it off. Uh, Anna is uh, on remotely, and she will uh, present the, the middle portion, and Kevin Cow is here to present the end. I want to start just by framing up the conversation. Um, as you all know, we annually review with the board uh, the, the risk of our investments. Um, there's a lot of work done throughout the year internally by Anna, by, by Kevin, um, by others on the team, and a lot of data that we analyze and assess. Our intent here today is to bring forward to the board the key risk themes and takeaways. So there's a lot behind the scenes. We want to present um, um, the, the important things uh, for you to know. Um, we have made an effort um, to streamline the presentation from prior years. So there's a lot of data that we put into the appendix that you can have uh, at your ready if you want to review. And what we've tried to do is complement a lot of the great analysis and numbers and graphs with each section having a page that talks about key takeaways. So, so if you read nothing else, if you read the key takeaways, that, that's what you should know. But it sort of late is a roadmap for what then follows with all the details in the graphs. And it is a lot of words, but we wanted to provide that context because I think sometimes we provide very thick packets of information uh, and it's hard to know, you know what, what to look at and what to take off of each page. So um, that was our, our, our objective and our goal. Hopefully we achieve that throughout the, the course of the conversation. If we could turn to the next slide. One more. And page four. So our risk management framework um, really, we have three pillars to risk management. We have asset allocation, ongoing monitoring, and our review for risk management. That's the, the, the big box on this page, and liquidity management. And we will be embarking upon the asset liability study, which relates to asset allocation. That is forthcoming. We presented to you on liquidity. Today's objective is to talk about uh, risk management. And what you see on this page is really a, um, an outline for the presentation. We'll talk about asset allocation and performance. We'll talk about our exposure analysis, and we'll talk about stress test and scenario analysis. So when things go on in the market, how are we exposed uh, and, and what would be the impact on the P&L? So turning to the next slide, this is the really though, what do you need to know as a board? And what do I want to leave you with um, by the time we conclude this presentation? First and foremost, SPURS has a very robust risk management framework in place. And we will be doing a lot over the coming years to enhance what we are already doing. We'll hit on that in, in more detail. But let's start with the, the basics of risk. Um, asset allocation is the key driver of uh, in investment risk and vol volatility uh, of our investment returns. We, we just heard earlier that 7.2% is our actual rate of return. And as you all know, to achieve that return, we need exposure to growth assets to get that return, we have to be in risky assets. So investing in those growth assets comes with tail risk, and it comes with uh, risk if the markets were to turn. So what do we do about that? We diversify. Um, and with your support over the past uh, five or more years, we've continued to diversify the, the portfolio, not only with fixed income investments, but also adding private credit, 
by looking at our absolute return portfolio and making sure we have diverse, true diversification within the absolute return portfolio. So that, that is a key um, way that we manage risk among many others. Another way that we think about risk then is our positioning within our asset classes. Again, as you all know, um, about seven years ago, Spurs intentionally leaned into certain themes, themes in, in, in IT, themes in healthcare, China, and, and, and believing in active management across all asset classes and in particular um, within public equity. Those have delivered, particularly the IT overweight um, and the decision to be active, uh, have active management has generated uh, excess return for the risk that, that we've taken in, in those areas. Um, on the healthcare side, I would say the results to date are a little more mixed. There are two reasons. Uh, one, I'd say uh, we're a little early. We're continuing to add exposure uh, in the, or explore adding exposure in the private markets. And as you know, as you add exposure, it takes some time um, for those returns to, to generate. Um, and there's also just some endpoint end sensitivity in the numbers uh, um, there, as well as China. Uh, and China, I know, is an area that um, has gotten a lot of discussion in the marketplace. Um, so we, we will talk about this a bit more. Um, we have had an overweight um, relative to a sort of standard ACWI benchmark. Um, and it has led, in, in 2023, it led to underperformance given the, the market pressure on the Chinese markets. But our active managers, particularly active managers dedicated in China, have added a significant amount of alpha. So they have done and served their role in generating outsized returns based on their insight into those marketplaces. Um, we, we just um, uh, were under some pressure, beta pressure, if you will, given the, the trends in the Chinese market. And uh, Anna will talk about a bit more about that uh, as she discusses things. And then finally, in terms of stress tests, this is, an, again, another important tool that we employ when evaluating risk. And there's a lot of uh, uh, analyses in here, which Kevin will go through, but to be very simplistic, I want the board to understand, because we have significant growth assets, which means significant exposure to equity, public and private, if there were a significant downturn in the equity markets, we would experience a drawdown and, and a significant drawdown. However, because we have a diversification of assets, we would expect the drawdown to be less than that of a standard, say, 70-30 passive portfolio. Likewise, because we have uh, leaned into areas like technology, if there were specifically a downturn in the technology market, uh, we would be uh, exposed in, in that scenario. Again, over the long term, we have these exposures because they will, we believe they will generate excess return. But given this is a discussion on risk, um, we, we wanted to um, run those scenarios and provide that insight to the board. And then um, on the next slide, uh, and again, we'll hit on this a little bit more, but where do we go from here? There are three areas that we're focusing on with respect to, to risk management. The first is um, asset allocation. So we'll be presenting to the investment committee coming in up in November. Uh, about sort of risk education and what is risk. Um, on portfolio positioning, uh, we, as we've talked about in the past, have more robust uh, procedures around monitoring risk within our asset classes and, and guidelines around the sources of those risks. And we'll be undertaking the structure reviews of our public market asset classes. 
And while, yes, that those reviews relate to return, they also very much focus on, on risk and risk-adjusted return. And then finally and importantly, we'll continue to enhance our risk monitoring tools. Resources here are very important. And, and when I say resources, I mean technology resources. I mean the ability for our, our um, analytics uh, to get the most out of the analytics and have a team that, that can um, get a lot out of those tools and having the right number of people on staff that have the skill set to use those analytics. Um, and I think an analytics and, and this risk management is increasingly important in running a complex portfolio. Anna and Kevin have done a, a phenomenal job uh, in working with our teams and we will continue to focus a lot in the, those areas. With that, unless there are questions, I'd, I'll turn it over to Anna, again, who's online, to start on the section regarding uh, asset allocation and risk. Thank you, Allison. Good afternoon. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share our work with you and not share my flu with you. There is a lot of analysis on these pages, and I would like to thank everyone, every, um, one on the investment team who touched this um, analysis and pages in one sense or another. would like to thank our partners, Burgess, Caissa, Style Analytics, um, BNY Mellon, Wilshire, uh, as well as um, Cambridge. Quality risk management comes from inquisitive risk culture uh, that is supported from the top. And so I would love, I'm super thankful for the board, for, you, for your continued work enabling us to conduct this research um, and use multiple technology platforms um, to enhance risk management. And I also would like to thank um, our CEO and CIO, Alison Romano, who is laser focused on risk management and improving our internal controls and internal risk processes. And last but not least, I would like to thank Kevin Cow, who will be presenting. Uh, he is an investment officer overseeing asset allocation and risk and put a lot of work into this analysis. Um, as Allison mentioned, I'll cover asset allocation and performance and exposures, and Kevin will uh, present stress testing and scenario analysis, and then we will um, give it back to Allison for uh, wrapping up and talking about next steps. So Allison also mentioned that today we are opening up kind of the middle pillar of our risk management framework. Um, and this risk management is a continue is done by SFIRST staff continuously. We continuously measure, manage, monitor exposures, including geography, sectors, industry, styles, factors, stresses. Um, and today we will share the highlights of this analysis with you, but it's a subset. So let's start on um, page eight. I think Allison hit on key points here, uh, but for the key takeaway is the strategic asset allocation is the key driver of risk and return. And this is what we do every three years with boards consultants, now Wilshire. Uh, we do an asset and liability study that determines this strategic asset allocation and board approves that. That's coming up. 
And what we could say and what we'll analyze on this page is where previous decisions by the board on strategic asset allocations added value. And we could say that they did, certainly versus the uh, simple 60-30-10 uh, or 70-30, uh, but also um, the policy the policy portfolio that was approved by the board um, did better than the average peer uh, of the defined benefits. The other takeaway here is that um, we, while we outperformed our policy benchmark, we wanted to analyze and attribute that performance and we could see that this performance was um, this outperformance can be attributed to both manager selection and tactical asset allocation. So let's dive in. Let's I'll go to next page nine. Here I'd like to step back a little bit and just connect with what we were talking in the morning with Kyron. When this dotted line of seven of seven point two is the discount rate, and just reminding that how likely is it that we can hit this dis, uh, discount rate historically, right? This was just the history. And if you look at the uh, orange line, this is the, the performance of rolling 20 year return of a 70-30 simple index portfolio. And you will see for most of the 20 years, it was under 7.2, right? Um, so is the 60-30-10. We look at the blue line, which is the performance of um, Spurs portfolio, and it is above uh, 7.2, but there are long, fairly long periods, like almost three years, when this rolling 20-year return was under 7.2. So very important to understand that this, as, as Kyron mentioned multiple times, it's a mean that we are targeting. There is a wide distributions around this returns, and we need to be aware of that distribution around this returns. That's what we call um, risk, and we analyze it in multiple ways. So if we move on to the next page, we will analyze this return over the past three years, and you will see this is a cumulative return of Spurs versus uh, three other portfolios. Spurs outperformed by wide margin, but more importantly, it also delivered this outperformance um, of more than 15% uh, versus 70-30 uh, or 60-30-10 with lower volatility, with almost half of the volatility. And the volatility is about like it's upside and downside, so it's also lower downside volatility uh, when we capture just the downside. And the other important metric that we look at, um, so the downside volatility is the fifth row, and the next to it is skewness. Um, what we call skewness in the returns, if you look at the symmetric returns, which is implied in the analysis um, that Kyron presented, then the skewness of that distribution is zero. However, most of uh, market uh, financial markets exhibit negative skewness. That means that the distribution is skewed heavier towards lower returns. And how and the lower that number, the more uh, negatively skewed is that distribution. So we also delivered that with lower with 
um, better skewness profile, uh, less negative returns, uh, and also um, lower worst, uh, worst monthly return. We will all, if we go to the next page, similar analysis for 10 year, you will see that there we did have um, more skewness, like there, there are more tail events. And one of the things that I'd like to highlight there, um, you will see the worst return in, uh, across the board in March 2020. Uh, of, for us, it was 66%, almost double for 60, 30, 10. Um, if we look at the last column, uh, that's a, another definition of tail risk that we look at. It's, a, it's called monthly valued risk at 99 confidence level. And that is an estimate of a greater, the greatest monthly loss with 99% probability or one in 100 months or one in almost eight, eight and a half years, right? It is worthwhile to observe that the losses on March 2020 exceeded that, those estimates. Um, this is something that's a bit of a preview of some of the tail risks that we will be discussing with Wilshire when we look at the, um, how to evaluate the quality of returns through tail risk, not just the mean of the distribution and as well as kind of the standard deviation. Moving on, Allison also mentioned that we continue to diversify uh, throughout uh, period more than 20 years uh, and introducing new asset classes. One takeaway from this uh, page, and you will see it uh, in further pages as well, is that while we are overweight private equity quite substantially, we're also keeping public equity uh, at a lower exposure. So the total growth is, is growth exposure is about target. The, one of the reasons is because we recognize that uh, that growth exposures and growth by growth, we mean public and private equity uh, is a key driver on risk and return. If you go to the next page, that's that's the history of return attributed to each asset classes. And you see that the blues and greens, the dark blue, and the, uh, which is public equity, and, and green, which is private equity, dominate the, re the volatility of returns, as well as the return itself. So um, I'm going to skip on page, next page and go to page 15, Darlene. This is, on this page, we try to estimate what is this volatility. There are many different ways, but here we took the policy portfolio and used the historical returns of the policy benchmarks to estimate uh, historical volat annual volatility of our portfolio. And that comes to around 11.7%. And just, I would just say very broadly, about 12% volatility is the estimate of the um, what can be expected as a real historical volatility for our portfolio. The other, if you look at the bottom chart, you could see that the that's the contribution from each type of asset class to this risk estimate. And you will see that almost 82% of this risk 
estimate is coming from growth assets. You can call them the public and private equities. So while we allocate almost 40% uh, to diversifying assets and income assets in capital, uh, it's less than 20% of risk that is coming from this asset. Another way on page 16 uh, that we'd like to evaluate whether uh, we are on track with our asset allocation is to look uh, versus how we're doing versus our expectations. So this is the 10 year tra uh, trailing returns for different asset classes and their policies, uh, benchmarks. On the top uh, right hand side in purple, these are our growth assets. You see that this, this is where we took the most risk. That means the standard deviation is the highest, but we also were compensated for this risk. That you also could see this is where we um, where deliver what these asset classes delivered the highest return. On the bottom lower chart in green, that's where we have capital preservation and assets like fixed income, treasuries, and hedge funds. And you will see that they um, they delivered lower volatility, but also it comes with lower return. One interesting outlier with uh, superior risk-adjusted return is the private credit asset class uh, that delivered capital preservation-like volatility uh, with superior returns. Moving on, so this here what we try to do is to see, okay, we have the policy portfolio and we estimated its risk at about 11.7%. But we also know that currently we have a strong overweight of private equity of about 7% and we have a strong overweight of real to real assets uh, of about 6%. How does that contribute to risk? Um, and that increases the that risk estimate by about 50 basis points. So you could see that even though the, the contribution from public equity underweight uh, is lower, the estimate, the risk estimate for public equity is higher, and as a result, the total risk for current portfolio is higher than the policy. I'm going to uh, check this the next page very quickly. What we try to do here is to answer the question: How much risk uh, did we take, or active risk did we take, with? our portfolio versus the policy portfolio, the answer is about 47 bips. There are a lot of assumptions, but the reason, and you will see that that's where the public equity uh, underweight helps reducing this risk, and we do manage it, uh, but the uh, private equity overweight and real assets overweight contribute to this active risk in tactical asset allocation. I'll spend the last, uh, sometime on the last page, page 19 in this, uh, in this section. So what we're trying to answer here is to see where we compensated for our tactical asset allocation decisions and manager selection. So here we took three different uh, timeframes. It's answered six years, we are working on longer horizon, but with here we, we conducted this analysis with BNY Mellon and we started our custodian relationship six years ago. So that's where 
that's why the numbers and in the six years we are working with Wilshire on longer term. But you will see that across the board, first row is first portfolio return, annualized. Second row, our policy, it calls interim because we, we adjust. It's not the strategic asset allocation of what is implementable. Uh, this policy, interim policy portfolio, uh, also has very robust returns, but below, uh, but, but first outperformed that uh, portfolio, policy portfolio. Next two rows are the volatility or the risk of these two portfolios. And you could see that we also not only outperformed the policy portfolio, but also delivered lower realized risk. And the last three um, rows are trying to decompose that extra outperformance, how much of it came from tactical asset allocation tilts or the allocation effect and how much came from manager selection or selection effect. And you could see that in all three uh, time, time horizons, uh, asset allocation and manager selection contribute positively. And one of the things that I like uh, a lot, this type of conversation, for example, sparked um, a lot of more analysis. And one of the analysis that you've seen on the previous page when Allison asked the question, okay, you delivered 56 basis points in tactical asset allocation return or allocation effect, how much risk did you take? So we, we estimate, as we said, about 46 basis points. And we're also working with uh, Wilshire to try to estimate the risk we took on the selection effect. So this concludes the asset allocation and performance attribution section, unless there are questions, we will uh, move directly to the exposure analysis. Any questions? Okay, let's go forward. Thank you. All right, brief overview. I think Allison did a very good job of making sure that everyone understands that they're the, the core tilts that we have conviction uh, and over time, and we are continuously evaluating our overweights to IT, to, to um, technology, to healthcare in China. This year, we reduced our overweight to China by about 10%, uh, coming from both uh, staff decision and market uh, movements. Uh, we will uh, see that the active, uh, we also reduced um, our active risk in public equity um, portfolio. So let's let's move um, move on and examine the detail. So page 22, it shows that um, if you look at the blue bars, this is our portfolio, bottom up actually what we what we hold. Uh, the green bar is a, a bogey to compare with uh, that we, we can evaluate at this point. But you can say that at this point we hold 23.6% of the total funds that we manage in technology, mostly public and private technology companies. Um, so I would say almost 24%. Um, the other thing is that uh, part of the technology has been reclassified into consumer discretionary or comes to, can be uh, also consumer discretionary. So that's another overweight that we have, uh, another 10%. 
The next largest uh, exposure that we have is healthcare. It's about 12%. And 11% in real estate, the bulk of it is coming from actual real estate, real assets allocation. Where do we have underweights? Utilities, consumer staples, and materials. So very broad strokes where we have exposures. Next page, 23, shows the history of uh, the exposures to each sector. The highlight is that the exposure to IT almost double over the last five years. And that is the, the, both from the market movement as well as from our conviction in this sector. Next page. Um, Allison touched on it in her review. We tried to answer the question where we paid for this tilts. And we could say that um, here we're analyzing public equity. Um, let's look at the longer term seven year horizon, which is the chart on the bottom right. Uh, if you look at the gray bar, this the, about 4%, that's the active outperformance of over the benchmark, which is MSCI equity over seven years. So this 4% um, cumulative outperformance, the question is then how much of that comes from sector tilts, like I care, and how much of that comes from stock picking. And here it's a mixed bag. We are saying that sector tilts helped, but the stock selection over that period didn't help. As I mentioned, part of the uh, healthcare and IT that we are highlighting also can be attributed in the other bucket. So we, we do dig a bit deeper, quite a bit deep, deeper, but that's the higher level takeaway. On the next page, page, page 25, we ask similar question uh, for our private equity exposures uh, to IT and healthcare. And we can absolutely say that um, investments in healthcare and IT private companies outperform the rest of the total private equity portfolio. And technology investments in private companies outperformed um, Cambridge's respective benchmarks. The healthcare portfolio is still maturing. Um, and again, the, the, it was additive to the total portfolio, but is still catching up to the benchmark. I'll skip the next page. Uh, very quickly, page 27. We are moving on to regional exposures and here country exposures. Largest country overweight is to China, coming most at, uh, of almost 9%. And if we move to next page, page 28, we will open up where this 2.9.2% uh, overweight coming from. You see most of it is coming from private equity um, and public equity. Over, and you, if you compare where we were last year, we've had about similar overweight in private equity and public equity. This year, we uh, intentionally reduced the overweight in public equity. Similar questions, moving on to page 29. How did we do? Uh, where we compensated for this overweight in China. And while, as Allison mentioned, while the um, 
MSCI China performance certainly hurt, kind of the beta till certainly hurt, our China managers outperform their benchmark, MSCI China benchmark, uh, by more than 7%. But this benchmark, MSCI China beta, uh, was, was negative uh, over the peri that period since inception, since we started investing, or the overweight in China versus MSCI equity performance. And similar for, that's for our public uh, equity China managers and similar uh, results for private equity China managers. Again, just, just with the caveat that it's a younger portfolio. And we will conclude uh, with the next slides reviewing active uh, risk in our public equity portfolio. So there are a few, uh, a few ways to look at active risks. Uh, one is uh, to look at the active share. Active share is the measure of portfolio by how much the portfolio is different from the benchmarks. You will see that we increase that active benchmark, uh, active share uh, and deviated from the benchmark considerably starting from 40% difference to almost 60%. And over the last uh, fiscal year, we reduced it to about 52%. So this is a com considerable change in um, active share deviation. And if you look at the next page, page 31, that's another measure of active risk in public equity portfolio. It's called tracking error. It's the ex uh, expected ex ante volatility of our portfolio, our holdings versus our benchmark. And you see similar uh, profile that we've been consistently increased it. And this year we're decreasing it. A lot of it is coming from our reduction um, to our China in our China overweight and some of it in our reduction in technology. And lastly, page 32, while we have a lot of active risk, our total risk for public, for public equity portfolio is in line with, uh, with the projected risk for the benchmark, and it, uh, which is MSCI equity, uh, all-country all world index. It is interesting to observe that five years ago, the expected volatility of the benchmark and our portfolio were about 10%. That's the the standard deviation of annual returns. However, right now, it's almost doubled. It's almost 19%. And that's true for both our portfolio and the benchmark. That speaks to heightened risk environment that we are in and we certainly all experience and see day to day. So unless there are questions on the exposure analysis, I will turn it on to Kevin to walk us through the tail risk and how we think about tail risk analysis. Thank you. So I'd like to start the stress testing section by explaining why we do the stress test. So the stress tests that we do here are single factor X anti test meaning we are trying to estimate the forward-looking tail risk in this first portfolio. And we do that through two processes. One is we, we shock single market factor like indices we think are proxy for certain type of risk that's first portfolio exposed to. And another, 
we will do it through the historical stress test that we use the historical realized return and relationship, try to estimate how Spurs portfolio would perform if the history repeats. And the current page shows the, the key takeaways of the stress testing. First is the diversification helps, and that is showed through we have less, less drawdown comparing to the histori historical realized because of our diversified portfolio. And in the single factor stress test section, it is consistent with what Anna talked about, the absolute risk that's first exposed to, that the tail risk we're exposed to are most with the growth. And here the growth is being proxied by the equity and credit market dislocation and emerging market currency devaluation. And we have very small sensitivity to energy and the interest rate shocks. And in the historical scenarios, if a scenario like great financial crisis repeats, first portfolio is estimated to lose 33%. And such an event is estimated to happen once in 30 years. As Addison and Anna mentioned earlier, because we have overweights to IT and biotech sector, those overweight also expose spurs to much stronger risk in terms of specific sector shocks. And we will show example in the historical stress test section. Next page, please. So current page shows the summary of the single factor stress test. If you look, the, the chart on the left shows the loss of spurs portfolio, and on the right shows the 70-30 portfolio. Because of the diversification benefit, spurs loss when there's a risk events in the growth risk, here is represented by the MSCI Equity Index, Barclays Global High Yield Index, and MSCI Emerging Market Currency. In those three scenarios, spurs drawdown is lower than the 70-30 portfolio. And overall, first sensitivity to credit interest rates and energy market dislocations are also lower, lower than the 70-30 portfolio. Next slide. And this page shows the asset class level breakdown of first sensitivity to the MICA equity down 40% scenario. And in all the single market factor stress test, we are assuming it's a roughly two standard deviation shocks to that index. And assuming normal distribution, such a event happening, the probability is around 5%. And Anna mentioned earlier in the, when she talks about the skewness, the actual financial market return are more negative skewed than the normal distribution. That implies the actual probability here will be slightly higher than the 5%, but it wouldn't be like a huge difference. And the breakdown shows the, the total first portfolio can lose up to 8.4 billion if the MSCI equity is down 40% or 25% return. And most of the negative contribution comes from the public equity, private equity, and real assets. Next slide. This page shows the asset class level breakdown of first portfolio sensitivity to the US interest rate hikes. And here the shock is 200 basis points or 2%. The overall first fund duration is around 2.5 years. And most of the duration comes from absolute return, private credit, and public fixed income. Because our relatively short duration, 
overall first portfolio is not exposed to the interest rate shocks. Next slide. This page is the summary of the historical stress events. And here we use the actual historical returns of the individual securities or the indices we use to proxy our asset class. And because our overweights in, in growth in the tech meltdown scenario, we will be down 14%, while the 70-30 portfolio is only down 1%. Because tech meltdown was a very specific event happened mainly to the technology and the communication sector. And similarly, under the US subprime crisis, we have more higher allocation to real estate through our real assets portfolio than the 70-30. That shows here we have higher drawdown than the 70-30 portfolio. Next page, please. And here is the breakdown of the tech meltdown scenario. And you can see the private equity portfolio contributes much more to the P&L than all the earlier single factor stress tests we discussed. Next page. Here is the breakdown of the U.S. subprime crisis. And here, real assets contribute much more to the P&L than the earlier single factor stress test. And this will conclude the stress test section. If there's no questions, Addison will cover the looking forward section. Turning to slide uh, 42. So we've talked about uh, a historical look back at our realized volatility and risk and return. Um, we've talked about sort of projected expectations on risk. And I want to wrap up by talking about sort of the actions that we're taking to manage risk on a go-forward basis and things that we need to think about. On slide 42, um, we have the capital market assumptions provided um, by, by Wilshire. And we put this in here in a discussion of risk, and it ties to our discussion earlier today on uh, what is our asset allocation relative to our long-term 7.2% um, discount rate. And just something sort of to set the table for future uh, discussions, you'll notice in, in Wilshire's um, expectations for future uh, returns that there are only a couple asset classes that are expected to get over that 7.2% return. Um, and and um, there's an expectation at our current uh, level of um, asset allocation that we will have a significant amount of volatility. So at our strategic asset allocation, 14.7%. At our current asset allocation, 16.2%. So just things, nuggets to keep in mind, if you will, as we start to think about asset allocation in terms of um, with, with uh, certain return assumptions going up for certain markets, where do we want to be? Where do we want to take the risk to achieve those long-term returns? And what this obviously doesn't capture that we'll talk about further is uh, we need the liquidity uh, in the portfolio. Um, so, so risk isn't just standard deviation of returns. It's, it's making sure that we have the liquidity to meet those payments. So the liquidity piece was not part of this discussion today, but it is all interrelated and wanted to make mention of that here. Going forward, I've hit on the, the points already in the introduction. Um, we are laser focused on um, thinking about risk and that risk is multifaceted. We'll have that education session in the IC committee meeting. We are doing a lot behind the scenes in each of the asset classes to, to manage uh, and think about risk. 
it's, it's return attribution, it's monitoring the guidelines, it's understanding each of our managers, and it is a process of what I'll call re-underwriting each of the themes that we talked about here today. So IT, uh, healthcare, China, active, they all, they all contributed in some way to this portfolio, the market's changed, and so we continue to evaluate whether we want to uh, uh, have exposure, increase that exposure, decrease that exposure, as long as we think that we're gonna get compensated for that, that risk. So those uh, discussions are ongoing. They will be part of some of the conversations we have in the asset class reviews for uh, public uh, markets, both fixed income and for equities. And then finally, again, um, I can't emphasize enough how much I am a believer in, in having robust analytic tools and a team that can interpret the output of those tools to better manage the portfolio. It's very, it's more difficult to assess risk in a total fund that has private market exposure. It requires a lot of time, energy, and effort to approximate and get the data in to evaluate and assess our risk. The team is doing a great job and we'll continue to focus on that um, and enhance our capabilities over the, the coming years. So with that, I will turn it over to the commissioners for any final questions. I have a couple of questions because I want to understand something in this uh, excellent report. On page 19, um, where it has allocation effects, can you please clarify the definition of that for me? Anna, would you like to address that? Certainly. So what we're doing here is the allocation effect is the attribution of this active return. So return over the policy that is attributed to the deviations of, uh, fr from the policy weight. So it's just the attribution on the, so there is no active uh, return there. This is just using returns of the policy benchmarks. But the weights that, that we, that the weight overweights and underweights that we've actually had across those asset classes. Okay, so it's a difference between the actual and the policy. Okay, that part is clear. Um, I'll make the observation then that you can see, comparing the three-year and the five-year numbers in, one number's going up and the other one's going down. Yep. Maybe that's to be expected. Um, right. There is a lot. We, we are going to actually unpack this quite a bit more uh, in our in investment committee meeting because we will open up and look at this allocation effect in addition to how much of that came from leverage. Um, so leverage is part of that as well. Uh, leverage. Uh, leverage and overlay, this is part of this allocation effect. So perhaps, though, um, on, on your question regarding the, the change on the selection effect between three and five years, what I, I there's a lot encapsulated in that selection number. So it's everything from sort of manager selection and what they're investing in their portfolio to generate return, but that's also where you're going to find where we're leaning in potentially within an asset class into a theme. So it's not it, it's a combination of where we're generating alpha 
And because, for instance, um, the pullback in the China market, probably some of that is coming through in this analysis in the, the selection effect. So what Anna went through um, throughout the, the, the materials sort of broke out in, in some cases that selection effect into decisions we made in, in hiring managers, but also leaning into those themes. Okay, well, <clears throat> I'll find another time to find how to explore that better because I think it's significant. Uh, then question to page 42 where it shows leverage at minus three, current asset allocation minus two. It's actually the strategic asset allocation at minus three. Maybe I'm mixing up the policy and authority were granted to let staff go to 5%, meaning positive 5%, or maybe it gets netted out the way you have to explain it. What is the strategic asset allocation we're allowing for leverage? So, so strategic asset allocation has target of minus three or 3% 3 leverage. That's in strategic asset allocation. We also have, if you notice throughout this presentation, used interim policy. So the interim policy doesn't have leverage because we're still ramping up our allocation to private credit and we cannot put full 10% to private credit. Um, strategic asset allocation has 3% allocated to leverage with a range of zero to five. Oh, it's the range. Okay, thank you for that clarification. So five is the, the, the upper limit on the leverage, and we can also remove it altogether and put it to zero. Okay, I wish I could find the page that I thought it was noted that our exposure in China has gone down 10%. I assume that's 10% of our allocation to China, which is a, around 10%. Um, I right. want to get a clarification, which CIO Romano has already explained part of it to me. How much of that came from market value reduction, uh, I want to say return of capital? How much was based on staff deciding to reduce money with any given manager or managers investing in that area? We didn't do the attribution, but it's both, it, there, there are actual staff decisions, redemption decisions or reductions of capital allocated to China. And there is also market movement in both public and private markets, as you've seen on the beta returns. Okay, let me get a clarification this way. How much of it was because staff needed or decided to remove or move, withdraw, whatever you want to call it, money from China? Was it zero? No, it was more money. No, it's, it's a considerable chunk of it is because staff decided to reduce allocation actively redeem money from China managers. I, I'm sorry, I don't know if it's the machinery, but you're, I cannot hear your answer clearly. Was it a percentage or dollars? Can you tell me? We did not do the analysis of uh, uh, the attribution, how much came from market and how much came from our decision, but I would say both are meaningful. Okay, so I can assume there was no tactical decision by staff to reduce our exposure in China. Um, if, if I could take that, so to, to clarify, you know we need to raise liquidity, and, and we um, so when we, for instance, raise liquidity, we may take into account where we want to take that from, and we may reduce, for instance, from from China managers, as an example. So, 
if you consider that a tactical allocation, then yes, we have tactically um, reduced exposure to some of those China managers. I think what Anna was trying to convey is that that was a significant portion of the reduction that we have in our China exposure, as was the, the change in, in the market. Um, and the third item that I would mention is for managers that aren't dedicated China, but that are global or EM or Pan-Asia, many of those are being more cautious about putting capital to work or investing in China. So there may be, there is an element there too of some less exposure in some of those uh, more global funds. But I think that is secondary to the two biggest drivers, which we already mentioned again, are our decision to redeem and take some capital from China-focused managers as well as the market moves. Okay, I know there's multiple reasons for reducing money with a manager or a sector. Uh, I'm trying to focus on the tactical part. If there was not just, there was a reason to raise cash, and there's many other examples throughout the portfolio, that's where the cash came from. We've been a net seller for way over 20 years. So I'll go again into that later to find out when you are tactically doing something. It, it, it is, though, um, we make an assessment of the risk and return profile, and there has been increased risk in China, and that is a key driver in the decision to reduce uh, e exposure and use that as a source of liquidity. Right, and maintaining the asset allocation weights for dump for reason. That's yeah. one of the guardrails we have. Okay, uh, the thing about this report, thanks for putting in the the 60-30-10 and the 70-30 numbers. I know when we added the 10 a few years ago. Uh, obviously, the new number that's starting to surface is 30-30-40. What I'm driving at here, and it's come up before, how much of this arguably excess return, whether it was our policy over one of those other made-up benchmarks or our actual return versus the policy, I'm trying to figure out how much of that is attributable to our strategic decision to maintain less liquidity. It's a big number. There is a liquidity premium. I forget which page it's on. Maybe it's back on a very uh, loaded page, uh, number 11, showing the spreads. That's great. Great page. Thank you. But I'm just trying to understand how to attribute to liquidity, how much to sector selection, how much to manager selection. Is that how you guys analyze and evaluate to use all this data? Because eventually this comes back to going forward. And while you think about that answer, again, I know that other work being done, and it relieves that whole what is it called for liquidity, where we have 70% of our assets are in one level, 30 days liquidity, 15% within 30, 90 days, and then another 15% for us to be a long-term investor. But I'm just trying to understand how to, to come back and measure how much of the positive return that we appreciate is related to our strategic decision to be less liquid. That's why the comparison to 60, 30, 10 does really not, that's the wrong comparison to make. I think this captures the liquidity premium, really, right? Because our policy portfolio has the liquidity premium in it. The returns on page 19, the policy portfolio, this is private equity pri policy. Private equity policy is, an, is a blend of indices plus 300 basis points. Private credit policy is a blend of um, uh, loans and high yield bonds plus 150 basis points. That's in this 10% uh, uh, return for the policy. That's the board decision on the policy. And the board's decision 
on the benchmarks and liquidities for that. And if we don't do that, that was the question, uh, the, the first page that we examined, right? Uh, if we don't do it, page 11, then, and as well as the page that Allison landed on and, and uh, with Wilshire assumptions, then it's very hard to, to get to 7.2%. So the seven, we have the illiquidity premium as part of our policy and our policy is reaching uh, the, the, um, this expectations, right? But if you go to, um, again, to Wilshire assumptions, I'm trying to find where it is, um, I think page 42, we have an estimate for 70, 30%. So if you look at the third row, all the way to the bottom, Expected 10-year return from Wilshire assumptions, 70% equity, 30% fixed income, 6% expected return. Expected 10-year return for Wilshire for our strategic asset allocation, current strategic asset allocation, 7.7. .7. That's the answer, right? Let me ask it this way so I understand it. On page 11, the table at the bottom where it says SFERS, is that the policy or the actual? Page 11. SFERS is actual. The blue line? Yeah, that's actual. Thank you. Perhaps, Commissioner Driscoll, what might be helpful is we could provide this graph with the policy port, um, return. And, and our actual return. And I think what you'll see is um, the distance between the blue line, which is our actual return, and the policy return is positive. Um, that, that, but that will be smaller than the difference between the policy return and a 70-30. So that gets to your question. Uh, big component is asset allocation, and then we've added value beyond that. Yeah. yeah. The alpha provided by staff is the re actual over policy. Correct. So that's a different number, but policy, that's one. Um, so I'll leave that issue. Just a, a thing, again, I forget which page it was mentioned on two different places, but going forward, there's the issue about factors. I know when we evaluated and retained Wilshire, the issue about how they will do more factor uh, consideration or analysis or additional factors when it comes to the asset allocation weight, and there's going to be some additional factor analysis here going forward. Absolutely. That's the, the, the next steps uh, that we're working diligently. It's a big, it's a big uh, undertaking, but that's absolutely what so, we're working on. So that's with, coming. Uh, okay, Wilshire. just that's trying to coming. keep Wilshire included in this that's because it's, there is the execution step. Thanks for all the historical information. What are we going to do tomorrow? Thank you, Anna. That concludes my questions. Um, I'm, I have a question. I'm not sure if it's for this section or for another section, but I'll put it out there. Uh, with the current events that we've been having continuously for the past couple of years on many fronts, um, the bank and different wars, um, technology is being hit a lot, especially like people in this who drafted, especially like companies that are based in different geographical locations. So how does that affect how we calculate risk and how we understand the real 
that's the second question is how do we understand the real impact on the portfolio and how do we measure that on a regular basis I guess those are three questions so I don't know if this is a section for it or not I'm, I'm, I'm happy to start uh, Commissioner Gandhi and, and I'm sure Allison has a lot of thoughts because that's something that we discuss with the team um, all, all the time so if you remember the chart on the public equity um, that that we we looked at the ex ante or projected risk uh, for uh, public equity portfolio portfolio and index, which is almost all public uh, markets. This is page thirty-two. You will see that exactly what you just pointed out. The recent returns, page thirty-two show in the almost any, we picked here an ex-ante uh, volatility estimate, but any risk estimate is heightened now and almost doubled, right? Versus where we were five years ago. And that kind of makes sense. You exactly said that five years ago, we didn't have this huge dislocations, right? Uh, in the market, including COVID, including wars, including, um, different kind of re-evaluation re, re of globalization. All of that is driving this one estimate, which is a big part of all risk estimates that you've seen today. And also part of, so these, this is kind of global macro view. Um, I would say that current risk estimates are heightened right now. And the second is on the technology side. Absolutely, we are reevaluating and paring down uh, where we think we have risks that are no longer commensurate. Um, so it's also as part of, as Allison mentioned, our monthly, if not daily, discussion on where are we going because we're paying benefits, where are we going to? Um, raise money from and, and some of it is going to come from technology managers where we feel are not the best position in the current market versus when we underwritten it. And I'd add a couple points. Thank you, Anna. Um, so from a bottom up perspective, if you look at say individual strategies in the public market side, you know, take a quantitative manager they're constantly reevaluating risk and the risk profile of e each investment and volatility metrics among many, many others relative to value. So um, part of their process in some respects, not just technology, just generally across their investments would be incorporating these factors and as volatility picks up, their models will, will adjust the portfolio accordingly. A fundamental manager likewise um, um, will be looking at you know value relative to risk or macro risk as they assess that or industry risk or supply chain risk and they will uh, adjust the portfolio so we have managers that are making those decisions on a stock by stock basis or across the portfolio um, we are acknowledging that the volatility of equities have gone up they frankly were at a extreme lows for quite quite a long period of time. I think that the numbers are catching up to the, to the reality. And so we want to make sure that where we have our exposures were rewarded, even if we were all passive, I mean, that, that's, that's a bet on one factor. That's a bet on market cap or, market, uh, or on momentum. So 
we are sort of more diversified than the market with the exposures that we have, but we want to plan for the future. And things like scenario testing is one way to do that. Now, you might test for the last tech crisis, and this tech crisis, if it were to happen, would be different, but that is one tool in the toolkit that we use to say, if this were to happen, what is our game plan? Can we accept the, this risk? If we can't accept this tell risk, how do we mitigate it through diversification? Well, now we have private credit. We have uh, focus in our absolute return to make sure we don't we have less equity exposure and absolute return, so that can deliver. If, for instance, the, the tech market were to struggle, so it's a long-winded answer, I know, but um, there are so many aspects to managing the risk that that we are focused on, and it is really very much from the bottom up and from the top down. I guess the question is, though, do you, how active are you during the current events um, even to get any information to update these numbers at the time? Like, for example, right now, how are you reaching out to any of your public and private managers asking how much of their staff is being affected? Or, I, I don't know, there is a lot that we're doing on our end even. So is that part of the calculation when you do risk? We're in regular communication, both on the public and private side, uh, with, with all our managers. So as things unfolded with SVB, um, we were reaching out and having conversations with our managers. On, on China, um, as events unfold, we um, not only talk with our managers, but we talk with other investors in the, in the, the community. Yeah, and, but is and there other a process resources. around that? Like, um, do you have a, like a formal process around that you use to do you use to calculate anything or update these numbers real time? I think it, the numbers that we talked about today are a reflection of the historicals. So that's a function of volatility and market price moves. So, so that we're not having conversations because that will flow through the numbers. It's the qualitative aspects and, and the discussions around what other scenarios we should run that then tie into how we use the, the numbers, if that makes sense. Anna, if you have yep. Yeah, we, we certainly have access to day-to-day -to -day, um, data. So, so maybe first thing, Commissioner Gandhi, we don't manage money in-house. We, we rely on our partners who are active yeah. in doing it, right? That being said, we have transparency, and uh, we can run a report and say, how much do we have in Israel? How much do we have in Russia? How much, what do we do? And at that point, we, and we know who is this money with, and we can contact them. That data is available on demand through our custodian. Uh, the question comes from a place of like my own LPs are coming to me and asking me these numbers on a quarterly basis now. Um, so I wasn't sure if this is something we're doing. Oh, absolutely. We, we, we run it uh, for, for privates at least quarterly. Um, and for absolute return and hedge funds, monthly okay and that's precisely where having resources and tools is really important so if there's something in the news um we are long-term investors but if there's something in the news that's critical you know i can reach out or anna can uh reach out to the team we can say how much exposure do we have to x or or, or y and what are do we need to do something about it um and and it sounds easy but there's a lot of work behind yeah, the scenes to, to get that data um but those those are all the things that we do. That's when we, that page one in the presentation about our framework, that is part of that framework each and every day. Definitely um, 
indicates and illustrates the need to maintain staff levels at SPURS for the ability to roll with the times and the times get, as it goes recently, just your point, things are changing so quickly and um, the, the need for staff is absolutely critical that we get behind supporting that. Did you get your answer? Any other questions? Well, you took a pretty heady uh, subject and put it down to the, the brass tacks, so to speak, and appreciate it. And I know this is a evolving process when we're looking at this. So. Yeah. You say leverage will be incorporated in the next in the IC meeting. Okay, that's fine. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Hopefully you're feeling better. Thank you. So, that was a discussion item. Can we have public comment, please? Uh, we have no in-person public comment on this item. A reminder <coughs> to any callers to please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Next item, please. Item number 12, discussion item, Chief Investment Officer's Report. I think we're in the home stretch here, so I will um, hit on just a couple points. Um, assets uh, are currently at $33.5 billion. In the slides, you have a summary of our performance and a description of the markets to summarize at a very high level. Calendar year to date performance is estimated at, and I underscore estimated because over this time period, uh, it is short and we do have to estimate on the, the private markets. Uh, we uh, estimate a return of 4.2% uh, for the total fund. Um, that is under a 60-30-10 uh, portfolio, for instance, and as I spoke, I believe, last month, this is a function uh, predominantly of the lag effect and having the exposure to the um, private markets in a period where public equity performed well, you can see uh, returning 10.7%. Over the longer term, three years, uh, we have a, a total fund return estimated at 8%, and um, as a frame of reference, that is in excess of that long-term uh, return assumption of 7.2%. That concludes um, my comments, unless um, the board would like to discuss uh, any of the asset classes uh, or any other trends in more specifics. Okay. Everybody? Well, thank you. It's a discussion item. Uh, public comment, please. We have no in-person public comment on this item. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Next item, please. Item number 13, discussion item, retirement board member, good of the order. Any um, comments, questions? Nope. Public comment, please. 
no in-person public comment on this item. Moderator, do we have any callers? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Next item is adjournment, but I'd like to make a comment and close this meeting with um, good thoughts and good wishes to the Middle East and Ukraine, most, and hopefully for a peaceful resolution to a really crummy situation. So I would, I would adjourn on that thought. Thank you.